From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shibes. And I'm Tracy McRae. Happy New Year. (laughs) On today's program, we'll get the year started off right. First up, January is National Blood Donor Month. We'll learn how you can become a blood donor. Next, we'll hear about new exercise guidelines for cancer patients. Also on the program, it's that time of year, cold and flu season. We'll hear from a Mayo Clinic expert about how to treat upper respiratory infections. And finally, there's a new nutrition facts label, what you need to know about what's in your food. All that, along with a health minute with Vivian Williams, right after this. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, January is National Blood Donor Month, and it's a perfect time to resolve to to be a regular blood donor and help save lives. January can be a, a tough month for blood banks for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's often bad weather, at least in this part of the country. Mm-hmm. And second of all, oftentimes people are, are sick with either a bad cold or the flu, and they, they can't get in to donate blood. The Red Cross has to collect 13,000 blood donations every day to be able to help all of the patients that are in need. And joining us in studio to talk about blood and blood donation is transfusion medicine, medicine physician at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Justin Kreuter. Welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me back. 13,000 units a day you need. Well, and the Red Cross just collects half of the blood that's used in the country. Another 40% from community blood centers all across America. And then about 10% are people like us at the Mayo Clinic where we have our own hospital-based blood donor program. I would imagine that uh, just having come through the holidays and starting off a new year, maybe the donations dip a little bit during the holidays when people are too busy. And so hitting it hard in January is a good idea. Absolutely. Plus, it's a time for New Year's resolutions. And I mean, it's a wonderful resolution to get out and help other people in our community. You're helping cancer patients, patients that are going through surgeries, as well as just people in our community that have uh, accidents. Are there virtually no side effects to giving blood? Well, a lot of people will kind of feel a little kind of run down after the fact. For a few days or weeks? Exactly. Usually it's just a few days. So, you know, those uh, high school athletes that that come in and donate, usually we don't see them before a big event, but uh, after the fact. So uh, you, you donate a pint, let's say. That's usual, isn't it? Yep. And how many pints do we have? Oh, yeah. what's in there? How many are going around? Yeah. We we have on average about uh, 10 pints uh, in our oh, body. So, so we take like about 10%. 10%. And that's by design. That's why, you know, we've got these weight uh, minimums. And that's why we got some of our donor criteria to make sure that what we are taking away is appropriate for you and is not exceeding anything that might become concerning for your health. Okay, so you can donate blood. You can donate platelets. Rick, our engineer, is a is a wonderful deer who's donating platelets. God bless him. That's yeah. right. What else can you donate? So uh, whole blood, and that's what we use to manufacture different products, platelets specifically. We also have donors that donate uh, plasma uh, specifically, and those are really going to be based on your blood type. It really depends on what donation is probably best. 
for example, a lot of times we talk about group O blood or even more specifically group O negative blood that we use in emergency situations. It's when you don't know someone's blood type. Exactly. You can give that to anybody. Yeah, group O blood uh, is safe to give to anybody. Uh, and... And for that reason, when somebody comes in and donates, uh, I know, uh, I think the Red Cross calls it Power Reds uh, donations, when you donate uh, two units. So if I have a Group O donor come into our blood donor program, and we have a little bit of, uh, they have a little bit of extra time, because it takes about a half an hour to donate two units of red cells, instead of to donate a unit of whole blood is around 15 minutes. But for an O donor that comes in, we get twice the amount of uh, of product that we can use for our patients. If you flip that around on the other side, if somebody is uh, has a blood group AB, their plasma is really the valuable thing that they can donate for the community. And so if somebody's group AB comes in uh, to donate, I, I want to ask them, hey, are, are you okay with uh, donating plasma? Uh, because that plasma is what we can use to give to everybody. That's the fluid. Exactly. That's the yellow kind of straw-colored stuff that suspends our, our red cells and our platelets uh, floating through our bloodstream. Would you say overall most of the blood products are used by trauma victims, or, or who gets most of the blood that you uh, receive? Well. It's going to vary by hospital to hospital. Uh, you know, if you have a women's and children's hospital, there's going to be obviously a lot of that blood's going to be used for uh, babies or mothers that are experiencing hemorrhage after delivering. In contrast uh, to a hospital like us, uh, we do have a level one trauma center, so we do have a lot of our blood going to support patients in our community. Nationally, though, I think the biggest uh, users are patients that are suffering from cancer so that we're supporting them through the their treatments so they can live to fight another day and get relief from some of those symptoms. I can tell you, it just feels so good. When you're a cancer patient, to get that transfusion, is it, it's amazing how good it feels. <laughs> and that's, so that's you nice had someone to kind of, you were uh, I did. going through cancer treatment. Yep, when I was going through cancer treatment, I did have one transfusion, and it just feels Fantastic! When you're feeling so terrible, to get that healthy blood feels wonderful. I'd like to shine a spotlight on that for all the listeners out there that are, have maybe a fear of needles or what this might feel like uh, giving blood. Certainly, we have to use a needle, so there is a little prick, but the pain is very transient, very minimal. We have very experienced phlebotomists at blood collection centers that are doing this professionally every day. And if you put that in the equation with on the other side, a patient is going to experience this very profound uh, relief or at least attenuation of some of their some their suffering. That's pretty profound. It's a huge deal, yeah. So uh, being an O negative, that's a universal donor. Uh, anybody can get O negative blood, right? That, that's uh, so <laughs> with an asterisk. But yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's what we talk about as a universal donor because in the terms of uh, compatibility of what blood can we give you safely – Generally speaking, O-negative blood is safe for people to receive. Who's eligible to donate blood? Well, lots of, lots of people in our community are eligible to donate who currently don't donate. There's some national standards, and then there's also some standards that are going to vary by your specific uh, blood collection center. So 
the two things that people really take into consideration are, are you safe and healthy for donating and losing a, a pint of blood? And on the flip side, is that pint of blood going to be safe for a recipient to receive? So generally speaking, a lot of the things that are regulated nationally uh, are things where you're looking out for the safety of the recipient, such as, you know, that you are, um, you know, the blood is, uh, you don't have HIV or you don't have hepatitis, uh, that you're not sick. Uh, because viruses and things like that can be transmitted through blood transfusion. On the other hand, some of the other things that are um, exclude people, sometimes uh, cancer can exclude somebody from donating, uh, but that that exclusion from donating is going to vary based on the location of the donor center, what their plan is, because that's really looking out for the donor's health and safety. So I wouldn't want to take a somebody who uh, collect them as a blood donor and they might need a blood transfusion themselves uh, later that week. So if people want to know more? I think contacting uh, your uh, local blood uh, collection center. So if you Google uh, you know, blood collection near me, I think hmm. uh, that's probably the best way because there's a lot of uh, Red Cross, there's a lot of community blood centers and hospital-based donor programs. Reach out to them and find out if you can be a donor. And I think it's important to highlight there are some people who uh, are eligible and currently donate and it would be wonderful if they took this January to make it a challenge to introduce two friends or colleagues uh, to the act of blood donation, bring them along with them. If you have never donated and you're unsure, reach out to find out if you could be a donor. If you could, bring along a friend uh, for moral support and hopefully blood donation. And there's a blood donor app too, isn't there? A lot of blood collection centers do have an app. Do we have one? We don't have one uh, yet, unfortunately. We'll see you next year. (laughs) (laughs) Millions of people need blood transfusions every year. Blood donation makes it all possible. And January is a good time to become a donor because there are some issues with regard to the weather and health concerns. Our thanks to Transfusion Medicine Physician at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Justin Crater. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, new exercise guidelines for cancer patients. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A group of researchers from the University of British Columbia, that's our friends up north in Canada, well, they've recently developed a new set of exercise guidelines for cancer survivors. Excellent. The new research recommends specific exercise regimens, taking into account the cancer diagnosis and the side effects of treatment. Here to tell us more is Mayo Clinic Rehabilitation Specialist and Co-Director of the Sports Medicine Center, Dr. Ed Laskowski. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Tracy and Tom. Dr. Laskowski. Nice to see you. Uh, so I guess you could say exercise is good for everyone, including cancer survivors. Yeah, you know, it really, if, if we had a pill that could provide all the benefits of exercise, it would probably be the best-selling medication in You're all history. You're working on that, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, why is it singled out? Why are cancer survivors singled out in this case? Well, it is interesting because you think of cancer, oh, maybe I shouldn't do as much and all, but and, and maybe you think 
that the disease itself is not affected by by such a simple thing. We think you have to hit it with chemotherapy and and uh, surgery and and all sorts of things. But uh, research shows that exercise makes a difference. It it, it protects against cancer. It actually protects against uh, seven different types of common cancers: colon, breast, endometrial, kidney, bladder, esophagus, and stomach. And it's pretty incredible. Isn't it's that? amazing. I mean, it's as good as smoking is bad, almost. It, exactly. Yeah. And this is this is voluminous evidence. It's not just one study. It's it's inc- incredibly strong research-based evidence that it protects against those. And and like you say, when you have cancer, you may think, oh, well, it's too late. No, it, it actually can actually um, improve survival after a diagnosis of cancer. And this has been proven with breast cancer, with colon cancer, and with prostate cancer. Three so, of the most common. Quality and yeah. quantity of life, both. So uh, were there guidelines before, and these are new guidelines? Well, you know, our our, um, guidelines for physical activity for Americans, they were originally developed in 2008. We revised them in 2018. And those guidelines say we should accumulate about 150 minutes a week of moderate intense exercise. And moderate is kind of where you're breathing kind of hard, but you can can, can still hold a conversation. (laughs) Hard to hold the conversation, but you can. Exactly. That that level. And so, but a, a separate group of researchers looked at specifically cancer patients and cancer survivors patients and found that really, and and really for all people, even lesser amounts were very effective. So instead of that 150 minutes, they recommended actually um, 30 minutes three times a week, so 90 minutes total per week. And, you know, even in our research in non-cancer patients, we find that any movement is good movement. Any activity is good activity. We used to have a requirement. We used to say, well, you really should do 10 minutes minimum of, of activity to get benefit. Now, Anything helps. Um, any we found that it's cumulative over time, and it adds up over time. And even as little as 20 minutes in a week in some studies make a difference in, in your actually your risk of dying. So specifically for cancer patients, they can improve the quality of life while you have while you're undergoing therapy. It can make the the burden of the therapy less. So a lot of these these therapies, uh, you know, they they take a toll on the body. And, and I was just going to say, newsflash though, yeah. when you're doing cancer treatment, you really don't feel like exercising. Maybe you're throwing up all the time with your chemotherapy or yeah. maybe the radiation really zaps your energy. Um, that makes it a little bit harder still to start exercising. You know, it's a great point, Tracy. And, and you know, but little bits help and just starting slow and doing something. We find that actually the opposite exercise improves the side effects. So fatigue, anxiety, depression, all those can be benefited by activity. So it will actually help you um, in your in tolerating the chemo therapy and, and also the the cancer treatment that you have. And, and you know the drugs for nausea are much better than they used to be well, back when you had the treatment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 30 years ago things better, have improved. Yeah. Well, it is true that uh, exercise helps with stress levels and so you definitely have anxiety when you're going through cancer so something that would help with that. Right. Course would be exercise. And that's one of the immediate benefits. And when we did the, the, sur- the research on, on the effects of activity in general, we found that that was an immediate effect. If you're anxious and you go out for a 30-minute walk or you, any minute walk, you're going to feel better. You're going to feel less anxious. And, and some of the treatments in cancer, they're pretty, they're pretty tough on, on the body and, and even on the heart. They're, they're toxic to the heart, some of them. So exercise actually helps mitigate those effects on the heart as well. So it'll, it'll help you tolerate the treatments better. And, and heart disease is still the number one killer of cancer survivors. So you're going to actually improve your odds, again, quantity of life as well as quality. 
You've talked mostly about aerobic exercise, uh, good for the heart and lungs and the body in general. What about resistance training? You know, it's it's also recommended to do even for cancer survivors and cancer patients because we lose about 10% of our lean muscle mass per decade after age 30. And that's just everybody. And it's just hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> it's just the way our bodies... 10% of our muscle mass per decade <laughs> mm-hmm. after age 30. Exactly. Our physiology changes. and, and uh, so. But the good news is we can combat that by instituting strength training. You know, we say, oh, I used to get away with that when I was younger. Well, you know, your body was different. But, but the good news is if we do strength training, we can replace that loss of lean muscle mass. And, and strength lends stability. So, again, if, if we have a lot of treatments underway in our body, we may feel fatigued. We may feel more imbalanced. We may feel more unsteady. Um, strength leads to stability. So strong muscles stabilize joints. They make you feel more confident. So it is also recommended, just like for everyone else, for cancer patients and cancer survivors to do strength training at least twice per week. Now that I think about it, it seems it would make sense that it would be even more important for people who are going through cancer treatment because if you're feeling so sick, uh, that's where the whole wasting away phrase would come from, that you're just laying there and you're getting smaller and, and trying to fight the disease. If you were lifting weights, if you were doing some resistance training, that would mentally help as well. I totally agree. And there's like a feed forward mechanism. Mm-hmm. When you when you do that strength training, you see the result and your muscle will respond. It'll get better. It'll get stronger. And and that'll just make things all, it just makes you feel better, makes you feel like doing more, makes you feel more confident when you're doing things. If someone wants to start a resistance training exercise, is it a good idea to meet with a therapist or a rehabilitation specialist like yourself before they do it? Absolutely. Technique is really key with strength training, and uh, I see people every week who hurt themselves doing strength training exercise. So uh, we say it's not practice that makes perfect. It's perfect practice. So you, you want that perfect form and technique when you do your exercises. So we actually have a bunch of videos on mailclinic.org. Um, we have they, they deal with body weight strength training and uh, tubing and machines and free weights. There's 35 videos. Um, really, you just search strength training videos on mailclinic.org. You'll find them there. We have a video that shows you how, and then a text transcript of of the description of the exercises. All right, that's Mm mayoclinic.org. All right, cancer survivors, it's important, and the guidelines are not quite as strict as for the general uh, public, but give the guidelines to us once more. So it's 30 minutes, three times per week of aerobic exercise, and also strength training included as a, as a part of the three-time-a-week program. And, and again, watch more, the videos, yeah. yeah exactly, and, and more, you know, is, is even better. So. But there's no minimum. Exactly. All right, exercise for cancer survivors. The goal is to help people with cancer live longer and better lives, and we know that exercise can improve your chances of survival if you've had breast, colon, prostate cancer, three of the most common, and exercise is important for prevention. It lowers your risk for at least seven different cancers. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic Rehabilitation Specialist and Co-Director of the Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Center, Dr. Ed Laskowski. It's good to see you again. Great to see you guys. Thanks, Ed. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, how to handle upper respiratory infections and what you need to know about new nutrition labels. All that, along with a health minute from Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
about one in ten Americans will have to deal with kidney stones in their lifetime. The stones, which are mineral and salt deposits, happen for various reasons. Dr. John Liskey, a Mayo Clinic nephrologist, says they form in the kidney itself, and at some point they can break off, and that's usually when people get into trouble. Dr. Liskey says that besides the intense pain associated with kidney stones, there's also a chance for infection. A diet high in protein and sodium can put you at increased risk for the stones, but the biggest issue is lack of water. If you're not drinking enough water, your urine's going to be more concentrated, and concentrated urine allows small particles within it to stick together, increasing the chance for stones. So prevention can start at the tap. So to ward off stones, drink water every day. Adult men should aim for at least 3.7 liters. Adult women and older teens should get at least 2.7 liters. And in other news, eating a healthy diet is not only good for the body, but also the mind. Angie Murad, a dietitian with the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, says eating certain foods can help improve brain health and preserve brain function. There's mounting scientific evidence that shows sticking to a method called the mind diet can make a difference in your risk of cognitive decline and dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. Murad says mind stands for Mediterranean-intervention for neurodegenerative delay. It's a combination of two healthy diets, the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet, and includes a variety of brain-friendly foods. It emphasizes leafy greens, berries, nuts, specifically ones that are high in omega-3, fish, and an additional vegetable as well as the leafy greens. Murad says the MIND diet is high in nutrients and is not difficult to follow. Foods to avoid or limit include butter, cheese, red meat, and sweets. Sometimes called the brain attack, stroke is the second leading cause of death worldwide and the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S. Both men and women are at risk of a stroke, but women are more likely to have and die of a stroke than men. Dr. Kara Sands, a Mayo Clinic neurologist, says stroke kills twice as many women as breast cancer. The good news is that strokes are preventable, treatable, and beatable. You can think about stroke as an interruption of blood flow to the brain, either there isn't enough blood flow getting to the brain or there's too much. Hemorrhagic stroke is when a blood vessel in your brain leaks or ruptures. The most common type of stroke, ischemic, is when a blood vessel's blocked and not enough blood flows to the brain. Dr. Sand says stroke can happen to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Recognizing symptoms and acting fast is key. If someone suddenly has a facial droop, arm weakness, or is unable to feel one side of his or her body, slurred speech or trouble getting out the right words, don't hesitate, call 911. Dr. Sands says it's important that stroke patients are recognized and evaluated as quickly as possible and treated as quickly as possible. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Tis the season for colds and flu and other upper respiratory infections. And what can you do to prevent getting sick? And what should you do if you do pick up a bug? We need to know. Joining us on phone from Mayo Clinic Health System in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, is allergy and asthma specialist, Dr. Adela Taylor. Welcome to the program, Dr. Taylor. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, well, thanks for being with us. So it is the season for colds and flu. And let's start with the cold. Is it is chicken soup soup still the best way to treat that? 
<laughs> Believe it or not, it is. So treating the symptoms along with a hopefully homemade bowl of chicken soup really is the most effective way to treat uh, the common cold. So it's a viral illness, so antibiotics do not do any good, correct? Correct. What about over-the-counter remedies? Do you recommend maybe acetaminophen, Tylenol, decongestants, antihistamines? Well, some of those things are helpful. So uh, things like acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, or uh, the group known as NSAIDs, which would be your ibuprofen or aspirin, are helpful in reducing fevers and headaches. Cough suppressants have not been shown to be very effective. Um, but com- um, combination products with antihistamines and decongestants together seem to work much better than using either one alone. In I- fact, antihistamines can make things a little bit worse by drying you out too much. Yeah, you, I just feel like I'm drinking hot water or tea nonstop when I'm taking some of those. What about, um, you know, the, there can be complications even of the uh, common cold. When should you see your doctor and what are some of those complications? So you should see your doctor if this cold, if your cold has gone on for over 10 days, if you develop a high fever, if you start to have more difficulty breathing, or if you feel that you may be getting other bacterial infections on top of it. So that could be an ear infection. So for example, not just ears being plugged up with a cold, but now you have ear pain or if they burst and they're draining, um, if you are an asthmatic and you start to have respiratory symptoms, that would be a reason to see your doctor. Or if the cold's gone on for over 10 days and now you're starting to have significant sinus pressure and a cough that is very productive of sputum, that could be the sign of a sinus infection. Now, does it matter if it's green or not, green or yellow or clear? It really doesn't. Okay. And I have heard that you should not blow your nose too forcefully because that can give you sinus problems. Is that true? It it can back up some of the fluid, not so much into the sinuses, but back into the ears a bit. Mm. We recommend irrigating with salt water. So rinsing your nose or flushing your nose with salt water can help move uh, the drainage that you have and um, help relieve some of the pressure you're experiencing. How can you tell after a couple of days of a cold, I'm like, okay, it's a cold, no big deal. And then all of a sudden I go, oh, no, it's the flu. Or what if I'm getting strep throat? How can you tell the difference between a cold and influenza? So influenza has a really abrupt onset. It comes on hard and fast. Sometimes people can all, almost pinpoint it to the hour that they got sick. Um you develop a fever that is much, you can have a fever with a cold, but usually it's very low grade. This is a much higher fever, usually associated with a pretty significant sore throat and a headache. But really the abruptness of how quickly you get sick would um, be a telltale sign for influenza. And um, strep throat, again, it's a quick onset. It comes on very, very fast, and usually the fever is much higher, and the sore throat is real significant and typically pretty significant headache with it. And there is a test for strep throat, right? If there's a question about it, uh, don't you can't you do a quick strep test? Yes. So you can go in and they swab the back of your throat, um, and very quickly they're able to tell you whether it's positive for strep. 
And if it is, you need antibiotics, and if it isn't, you don't need antibiotics, correct? That's also correct. So if it's strep throat, that means it's a bacterial infection and should be treated with antibiotics. And there's a test for the flu also, isn't there? There is. um, That's also a swab, but it's done through your nose. And um, if that is positive, then there are um, medications to treat influenza. And how long does it take to get that test result? Those results come back pretty quickly. Yeah, and if, uh, as you were saying, it comes on really fast, you you know this probably is the flu. You should go in right away. Don't wait. If you start to have very quick onset of symptoms, it is best to be seen quickly because the medications for influenza work best the faster they are started. So it really is important to be seen within 48 hours of when your symptoms start. The sooner the better because that helps shorten the duration of the infection. Not by much. What, 24 or 48 hours? I mean, you know, they're okay, but they're not great, right? <laughs> well, right. So depending on the drug, anywhere from a day to a couple of days. But anyone who's had the flu will take one day less That's right. of their yeah. symptoms. Uh, what about the lungs? Let's move into the lungs and uh, talk about bronchitis. Uh, is the main symptom of that, would that just be coughing or a tight chest? So bronchitis, um, the biggest symptom is cough, but it can be associated with some wheezing, with some shortness of breath. And, of course, if you've been coughing enough, you're going to feel that your chest is tightening up. The cough can be productive or not productive, so you can get that discolored sputum, but not always. And then does bronchitis transition into pneumonia if you don't take take care, or is this two different bugs altogether? Um, it, it can. Um, in most cases, bronchitis will resolve within a couple of weeks, but in predisposed patients, you can end up with pneumonia. So we've all heard the term walking pneumonia. Tell our <laughs> listeners what that means. So walking pneumonia is a pneumonia that um, is uh, brought on by a particular bug. And so the symptoms tend to be not as not as severe. Uh, you don't. You still have the cough, but you're able to go to work and function. <laughs> Is are most of the cases of walking pneumonia? In other words, you're sick, but you can still walk around. Are they viral or are they bacterial? They tend to. They tend to be caused by a specific bacteria. Okay, so antibiotic treatment would be appropriate. Would be appropriate, correct? Based on a sputum culture. Um, oftentimes. Okay. All right. Uh, as we finish up here, you've got 10 seconds to convince everyone to stay home when they're sick. We didn't bring that up. Please do. Please stay home. Rest. And that chicken noodle soup is really going to be the best treatment if you have that upper respiratory tract infection. All right. So how long are can you infect someone else before you get symptoms of the cold and how long after your symptoms are gone? Oh, good question. At least a few days before, once you start coughing and sneezing, then you are infective. And that can um, last for a couple days afterwards. So a good 12 weeks to two, or 12 days to two weeks. All right, stay away from those people, right? (laughs) And wash your hands. That's the best way to keep from getting sick is hand washing. Eat right and plenty of sleep. Also good ideas. All right, our thanks to Dr. Adela Taylor from the Mayo Clinic Health System in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Thanks, Dr. Taylor. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. Still to come, we'll learn about changes to the food nutrition labels. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. In 2016, the FDA published final rules on the new Nutrition Facts label for packaged goods. It was the first major change to the label since it was introduced in 1994. Now, the changes are based on updated science. In fact, we're smarter than we used to be, (laughs) including the link between diet and chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease. The new labels should make it easier for all of us to make a better informed food choice. Here to, uh, oh, many food choices that we have to make. And here to discuss those changes along with some important nutrition advice is Mayo Clinic registered dietitian, Ms. Kristen Free. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. Kristen, good to have you. So these labels are out. Do you think that anyone is going to notice? Yes, I think they will because the the changes, some of them are big enough that they're meant to kind of jump out at us on the labels, the products. Mm-hmm. For example, what, what's what's different? Yeah. Oh my goodness, so many things. So the big thing is probably calories because <laughs> it's bolder, it's bigger. They've allotted some more space in the small label that it is. I did not need my cheaters to see it. That's how big it is. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Big and bold. Yes. yes. What else has changed? What other changes? So serving sizes, the actual amounts, as well as, again, the font size. Um, we have different um, information on added sugars will be in there, not only just the total sugars anymore. Um, the, so, uh, tell, yeah. us, tell us about added sugars. How does the FDA define an added sugar, and why do you need to be careful about how much added sugar is in there? Right, right. So FDA defines added sugar as any sweeteners that are added during product processing, and then they're packaged as such. So something that would be a more natural sugar would be dairy products, fruits, we're not so concerned about that as dietitians. However, the added sugars above and beyond natural occurring sugars, we need to limit. So American Heart Association recommends six to nine teaspoons a day of added sugar as a max. That's breakfast, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> However, we as Americans tend to consume closer to about 17 teaspoons, so about double the amount. And this All right, is, so in yeah. this example label, it's got uh, added sugars 20%. So I should add up the so that my added sugars total no more than 100% in a day. Is that in it? a day, correct. Yep, okay. so that 20% you were looking at, that's our percent daily value. Meant to be just a general guide. Um, it is based on someone eating 2,000 calories a day. So if you are eating 1,500 calories a day, we wouldn't recommend that low for you, but um, you would have a smaller percentage to be kind of shooting for. I think especially for my needs the sugar thing is the number one thing that I watch mm-hmm. because there are some products and I'll just pick on ketchup, yeah. uh, you know, there's that has sugar in them that don't need mm-hmm. it. You can buy versions of it that don't have it. Correct. So that hidden sugars, mm-hmm. um, is it going to be easier to find to see those now with this new label? Absolutely. And we as registered dietitians are excited about this because historically we've had people watching out for all yogurt because they just thought yogurt has sugar. However, it has natural lactose, milk sugar, and sometimes added sugar. So this will help educate and differentiate. Mm-hmm. All right. Fats. Uh, what's changed there? Anything? And I, yeah. I noticed that they have saturated fat and trans 
trans fat, I assume those are the bad fats and you want to try to avoid those if possible? Yeah, limit the saturated and trans fat, absolutely. So they've removed the calories from fat row on the Nutrition Facts label. And the reason for that is, yes, back in the 1990s, the low-fat diets were all the craze. However, they found through research that it's not necessarily the amount of fat we're, we're trying to limit, but kind of watching out for the quality of fat, shooting more for the unsaturated fats, so the opposite of saturated and trans fat. Mm-hmm. All right, and the other change was in nutrients required. So uh, that's in the at the bottom of the label. Explain that to us. Yeah, so four nutrients is what they have space for at the bottom of the label, and these are the vitamins and minerals. So the ones they choose to put on the bottom of the label there are the ones that Americans tend to be lower in our intake. So are these so, the same on every label? They are, yes. Vitamin those, D, calcium, iron, and potassium. Correct, yes. Yes, and so the two they've changed out as of um, as of now would be vitamin D and potassium are now taking the place of vitamin A and vitamin C. So we're not seeing the same deficiencies we saw 20 plus years ago in vitamin A and vitamin C. So they've replaced those. Um, that being said, however, manufacturers can put any of the vitamins and minerals they want to voluntarily add on their labels. So uh, it's a good question that Tracy uh, brought up at the beginning. How many people do you think actually pick up a food item and, and look at the label? Is it more than we think? How much do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I just I know that it, it takes longer it. to shop when you do that. Mm-hmm. But then when you find the products that you want, um, I, I do think that this this label will make it easier for me mm-hmm. to go shopping. That's for sure. I mean, the servings per container is also mm-hmm. a really important piece that I'm glad that that is a little bit more highlighted as well. Yes, yes. And that's just it. And I think you were maybe going to add in that you don't necessarily look at the product label every single time you buy that product because we naturally think that it's not going to change a whole lot. It could change. And someone with food allergies maybe are looking a little closer for other things on it. But Yes, they are actually finding through surveys people are reading nutrition labels. So I'll be curious to see if the numbers go up this point forward um, with the new label. Mm-hmm. So um, from your standpoint, if, if I pick this label up, I don't have a lot of time. What, what should jump out at me? What should I be careful uh, of paying particular attention to? Yeah, so as a dietitian, that is a loaded question <laughs> because, right, so we want to know what is your nutrition goal. So if you are trying to lose weight, we might talk about serving size, the amount of servings per container, and calories maybe are going to be the highlight that you want to look at. So calories, how many is too yeah. many? What, what do I oh, want to avoid? Oh, goodness, another <laughs> great question. So that would be a good conversation with a dietitian because if your goal is to lose weight or maintain weight or gain weight, and then we'll look at what's realistic. So um, if it's more of a snack item compared to a meal or meal replacement, we're going to be wanting smaller amount of calories for snacks. It may be higher for a food because we wanted to satisfy you. It kind of becomes a numbers game at that point, Tom. It It does. does. Carrot sticks better than Cheetos. (laughs) Both orange. The same. (laughs) That's why I don't look at them. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, the new nutrition facts labels are here to help make sure that we all have the most accurate, up-to-date information about what we're eating. If we want to eat healthier, and who doesn't? Right, Tom. That's right. Yeah. Take a look at those new labels. Our thanks to registered dietitians. 
dietitian, nutritionist, Kristen Free. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Kristen. Mm-hmm. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.